You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Kyla Scanlon. Kyla, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you. So you are someone who's uh, been an investor. You've, you've worked at a hedge fund. Now you work in education, and you also are, are a TikToker. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, you know, manage? What, what, tell us about the balancing act. Yeah, so I used to work at a mutual fund, um, left a few months ago, uh, and with the balancing act, I, I just, you know, kind of have a night job and a day job, uh, spend a lot of time on the weekends thinking about content, and usually we'll have an idea for content and, and do it later that night. So um, yeah, it's it's a huge passion of mine, so I always make time for it. There we go. So by the way, everyone, to everyone at home, follow Akila on TikTok. She posts something every day. So Kyla, you like to have a phrase for stocks. Um, it's a very long word. It begins with a PH. It's for, it's for when they sort of go up. Can you tell people about what that phrase is? Yeah. So whenever the market is green for the day, I'll say that the market was photosynthesizing, uh, <laughs> trying to throw some science into the markets. Um, but yeah, like plants will turn green when they photosynthesize. So that's what I say when the market turns green. And it's a good connector for people, like when they listen to the TikToks and they'll say, oh, you know, the market photosynthesized or not. And, and what I love about that, Kyla, is that photosynthesis is something that happens every day. And when you're in a bull market, it kind of feels like the market is going up every day. And it only doesn't photosynthesize when there's a, a hurricane, which is very rare. That's true. Yeah. I, I, somebody asked me what we should call like a down day like we had today. And someone was like, call it hemorrhaging. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's the, the quite the right answer, but yeah. Yeah, well, you did have a little bit of hemorrhaging today. You know, not a lot of photosynthesis in the foliage with the NASDAQ down two and a half percent today. That is quite a move, almost as uh, vigorous, I believe, as the move down last Tuesday. And I actually noted uh, this was an hour ago, so it's probably no longer true. But about 11 percent, excuse me, 11 of the 100 stocks in the NASDAQ 100 were were um, were down over five percent today. So a fair amount of hemorrhaging today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the growth stocks have just been pummeled for the past few days and, and have not really gotten much of a breather. Yeah, and that came, I should say, on the heels of a move up in bond yields. Bond yields sold off the 10-year. Uh, 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 the yield rose about 2.5% to, for the 30-year, is about to the tune of 4%. So you kind of have that duration play where growth stocks, which are perhaps longer duration assets, selling off. And it was the energies, the uh, real estate, the utilities, the shorter duration stocks leading the way today. Um, yeah. Kyla, I want to uh, get your sense of the growth stocks. I know you've got your eye on a lot of them, stocks like Facebook, stocks like Beyond Meat. Uh, where do you want to begin? Yeah, yeah, we can start with Facebook. So I love Facebook. Well, so I shouldn't say it like that. I think Facebook's a really interesting company. I think that they do have their flaws. Um, I'm, I think that a lot of people are underestimating their growth prospects because of Oculus, um, because of WhatsApp, just the exposure that they have. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that 
if they can get Oculus off the ground, which is their VR AR tool, if they can get that off the ground and become a computing platform rather than a social network, that's going to totally change how the market should see them, I think. So that's Facebook. Now bring us to Beyond Meat, which I understand you have a very different view of. <laughs> yeah, so Beyond Meat, I, they 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 lost on earnings last week. They did not do so well. Uh, and I think that you know, they're interesting because they're still so unprofitable and there's a lot of competitors moving in the space. And one thing that I'm like a thesis that I'm working through is like, what's going to, what's a good reopening trade. And I don't know if beyond meat is quite the reopening trade. Cause I think that we're going to have this return to realness. Like people are going to want to have like real foods, maybe not so much like pea protein isolate, like beyond meat has. Um, so that's like one thing I think that could impact them qualitatively. Yeah. So Kylie, it's interesting, you know, on the one hand, as you say, it was a very negative quarter for them. They lost 26 million versus the 11 million expected. They missed their revenue as well as 4.5%. But on the other hand, Kyla, you know, I did see a statement from their CEO and he did say, quote, never in my entire career have I been more confident in the future of Beyond Meat. So, you know, it's kind of two sides. Yeah. I mean, they do have partnerships lined up and you could, I mean, really like this, that could go either way with, with regards to like fake meat or plant-based meat people could lean into it more. I just, I would have expected them to see more growth at this point than they have seen in more profitability. Yeah. 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 Or, or less losing money ability. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something a little bit stronger. <laughs> there we go. So, so Kyla, tell us how you're thinking about the federal reserve, the, the, the macro forces, you know, interest rates, yeah. Janet Yellen saying this one thing, the speculation in crypto, Bring it all together for us. You, you, you've written that the world is full of shortages and surpluses at the same time. What did you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the main thing with that, the shortage and the surplus, is that we have a surplus of money right now. There's a lot of money trying to find a home, um, and there's also a lot of people talking, so a lot of <laughs> surplus of words, we could say. And then I think that we have a shortage of commodities. So those two things are sort of a balancing act, where you have all this money trying to find a home, um, all these words trying to find a place to go, and then you, you know, the shortage in commodities. So it's like those two, you know, uh, differing forces. Yeah. So with lumber, we've got um, lumber at over sixteen hundred dollars all-time highs. Yeah. Copper, I think, made all-time highs today, if not on Friday, which was, uh, you know, striking for for a very of a moment. You had a TikTok which I like, which was sort of a, a guy going into a jewelry store wanting to buy a ring, and the person said oh, here's a golden ring. He said, no, no, I want something that's been go going up a ton. So he first got a copper ring, then got, got a lumber ring. Um, so tell me a little bit about how you're making sense about this tremendous commodity inflation that we're witnessing before our very eyes at the same time as the consumer price index is muted, at the same time as you know we're not seeing the progress in the jobs market. I was, saw on Friday that, that many were, were expecting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so like, I make a lot of content around commodities because I think it's really fascinating, like the physical constraints, like you cannot, you can't literally, you'd have to expand production in order to like have more of that. Like you, it's not something that you can do cloud computing wise. And so I think that's like really fascinating and we're topping all time highs in all of these different commodities. So lumber, like you said, copper, all of them are just corn, all of it's reaching all time highs. And I really worry from a supply chain perspective, like how that's going to show up in prices down the road. Cause like right now companies could pass off those increases in prices, which several of them have done um, to consumers. 
But it's also at the end of the day, it's like, okay, (laughs) so prices might be increasing, but we're not seeing that show up in inflation numbers, like what's going on there. And when the Fed says that things could be transient, like maybe they're right, like maybe the supply chain shortages can be fixed, like production can be expanded. But there's such a misbalance between supply and demand right now because of reopening demand, because of all of this stuff, um, that it's like how much short term pain will be priced in and how much short term pain can the Fed sustain and like, are they willing to take on? And so those are all questions that I'm like trying to work through. And even if they, even if they raise rates, it's like, okay, so what's next? Like you still have these massive shortages uh, and raising rates isn't going to fix that or lowering them at this point isn't going to fix that. Tyler, what do you mean when you say the pain? It's it's not that the asset prices are going to go down and right. It's, and it's not that, you know, unemployment is going to exacerbate your, are you, what do you mean by pain? Yeah, I mean, I think just like pain and, and price numbers. So like everyday goods that you buy, like a lot of people have said, uh, you know, you're seeing everyday goods go up in price. Like somebody on Twitter today was like, my Starbucks drink is like $2 more expensive than it used to be. So you're starting to see companies have to pass those costs off to consumers. Um, and so they can either do that. They can either pass costs off to consumers or they can shrink the products that they're selling. So shrinkflation. <laughs> um, so the opposite of inflation would be shrinking the products. Um And like both of those are bad in the end, like good for the companies, quote unquote, but it makes consumers less trustworthy uh, and that'll show up in profit or it makes consumers trust the companies less. And then the, you know, that shows up in in stock prices eventually. Right. Um, So I think that's like the big worry is like, what are companies going to do? What can they do? Um, How much increase in prices are we going to see? And how is that going to show up in grocery bills? Um, how is it going to impact like this sort of recovering after the pandemic as everybody tries to get back on regular footing? Um, so yeah, it's all of the, like the regular people things, I guess, like not not even asset prices, just like how do we live in our day-to-day lives? And, and I think that's like what I worry about with supply chains. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So what's the trade, Kyla? I, we were talking about earlier, um, you know, you could buy an energy ETF. There's also a, a ETF that for lumber, I believe that the, the ticker is uh W-O-O-D, just wood, basically the, the sort of timber companies. What, 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 you know, what's the trade? What, what are you looking for if, uh, for the ultimate reflation, the ultimate commodity inflation bet? I'm, I'm looking at home builders. Um, I, I don't know if that's like the best answer, but I think that there's like, as you know, right now we're, I think, reaching the sort of a peak in, in that bubble, but I think that that could be an interesting place to play. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think with commodities, like you could get into some of the commodities and sort of have it top out at all time highs, but then you could also do like derivative plays. So like, as you uh-huh. look, maybe even getting into semiconductors, so like all of these different things, um, like who's going to have exposure and who's going to benefit <laughs> from supply chain shortages is, is a good place to, to look. Yeah, uh, I should say to everyone at home, so you, you see Kyla, you hear that she's a TikToker, you might have a certain impression, but Kyla's been trading these markets for a long time, and she's been she's had her eye on the you know trading options and derivatives in these markets. Um, so she's she's a very sophisticated person. Kyla, I want to ask you, sophisticated person, a sophisticated question. Tell me about what you're seeing in the futures curves in these commodities, because what I hear is that seventy percent of them, or, or some degree, are in backwardation, meaning you're yeah. you're kind of getting um, 
uh, paid paid to own them, which is very favorable for commodity investors, which in some ways can exacerbate the bubble. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it just shows how much demand that there is. Like people are, there's a ton of demand out there and a huge misbalance between supply and demand. And that's really what it boils down to at the end of the day is like, yeah, people are willing to do crazy things in order to get that across. Yeah, what, what I think of it is kind of like normally you would, uh, let's say if you ran a feeding farm, like a, a farm of cattle and you ordered corn, you'd sort of wait your orders of corn, like I'm going to order a May contract, I'm going to order a June, and it's going to be very orderly. But when there's a huge shortage, you just order, I, I need all of it now. You know, So that inflates the price for the spot price, and then there's less demand relatively um, in, in the later later tenors. Um, okay, so, oh, oh, I know, I know, this is a perfect segue, Kyla. So we've had this commodity inflation. The CPI that we saw last month, 2.6% compared to 2.5 expected, it was kind of a nothing burger, but the inflation break-evens are ripping higher. The two-year uh, break-even reached, um, you know, it exceeded its, I believe, 2007 high, um, uh, you know, a month ago. And I think the five-year did that today. It exceeded its 2007 high today, if, if not on Friday. So really, even if the consumer price index, the, the CPI, the PPI, whatever, you know, floats your boat, if you're not seeing any economic data, the market is pricing it in. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think the market made that pretty clear, like with the 10 years, like they, they're expecting inflation to come. Um, like, I think that it's hard to look at some of the economic data and, and say that there's not going to be inflation down the road, like, you know, getting back to the supply chain shortages. Uh, so I think the market is, is aware and uh, <laughs> like, it seems like sometimes the only person who doesn't want to talk about it is is the Fed. Um, and, and, you know, maybe it is transient, but yeah, I think that the market is definitely making itself, um, is building around that for sure, that narrative. So the Fed, they're sticking to their line. It's going to be transitory. However, Treasury Secretary Yellen last week said something slightly different. What did she say and what did you make of, of her remarks? Yeah, yeah. So she said that rates might have to rise if if, if the economy is overheating, uh, and you know that's not wrong. Like you theoretically should increase rates if the, if the economy is getting overheated. Um, and but she kind of when she said that, she the market sort of went into you know a tailspin, a, a small little tailspin, and VIX popped, everything like that, and it just showed how far we are, I think, from the market being willing to have even a conversation about raising rates just based on that reaction alone. And, you know, there is a couple like components to that. Like she basically she she overstepped. Right. Like so she's supposed to be focusing on fiscal policy. Um, now she's talking about monetary policies. They're not really supposed to do that. And then she she retraced her steps and was like, oh, no, I, I, I don't think inflation is here. Like everything's fine. We don't need to raise rates. Um, and so I think like that happening just showed, uh, yeah, that the market is really reliant on communication um, and, and really needs to be eased into the idea of easing up on on monetary easing. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, it's, it's definitely yeah. Uh, it's definitely a game of narratives. It's a game of I say it and you believe it. And if you believe it, the market goes a certain way. If you don't believe it, it goes a certain way. And it's kind of like options where it's it's path dependent. Once the market has gone a certain way, there's no going back to that to that parallel world, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but okay, so let, now, so you, that's what Janet Yellen said. Now, explain uh, to us just the dividing line between fiscal and monetary, where, where Janet Yellen um, basically wanted to 
you know, dictate monetary policy, over which she used to exert control as, as chairman of the Fed. But now she's in a different role. And uh, I don't know, I know you have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, like, why she kind of put her Fed hat back on and, and waited. And, like, she's very used to doing that. Uh, but I think that it was so interesting because she spoke out against the narrative that Jerome Powell has been pushing so hard. Like, we're not going to raise rates. We're not going to raise rates. Um, we're not going to think about thinking about raising rates, you know. And then she comes out and is like, hey, you know, we might. And uh, and then Biden, it was like, I agree with her, too. And so I think that just like, you know, the, that's fiscal policy is supposed to be like government spending taxes, all that stuff. They're not supposed to mess with raising rates because that the Federal Reserve is supposed to be an independent entity. Um, so kind of seeing that crossover, it, it, I don't know if jarring is the right word, but it was like, OK, like that are, there's there has to be coordination to a certain degree. Um, and the Fed, you know, independence might be not the the main priority all the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. all, all this that you said, Kyla, I would characterize that as within the mainstream discourse over monetary policy. But I there was I was reading your work or your blog, which I recommend people should read. And there you made a claim which struck at me as, as not being within the mainstream. And that phrase is the following that Janet Yellen and Dogecoin are saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah, they're both uh, rallying cries against the establishment. <laughs> um, but yeah, so <laughs> expanding on that, like, so Janet Yellen wasn't supposed to say what she said. Like, she went against the narrative that has been built up over the past several months. Like, we're not raising rates, we're not raising rates. Um, and her speaking out was, you know, the sign that, like, she was stepping out of bounds, right? And I think, like, with Dogecoin, and we, we can talk about Dogecoin a little bit more, but, like, Dogecoin yeah. itself is also sort of, like, a rallying cry against, I think, sort of the traditional financial system and, um, how, like, the traditional ways of valuation and uh, everything traditional um, is sort of, uh, you know, disappears under the guise of, of uh, Dogecoin. Mm-hmm. Rick, tell us a little bit about Dogecoin. Let, let's, get, let's get into it. What, what's your take on it? So... You know, everyone was expecting the Elon pop uh, that you would yeah. you, that that would go up during the SNL. We saw the exact opposite; the price is depressed. Now it's sort of like what 50, 50 cents. So, yeah. what do you make of this? It's it's so bizarre to me. Yeah, I mean Dogecoin. So it's sort of funny. I was making videos about Dogecoin back when it was like two cents about Elon Musk and Dogecoin, and like oh, every time that he tweets, like it increases an X percent in value. Um, and then, and so now it's like, it got all the way up to 70 cents and I look back and I'm like, wow, you know, he's been sort of memeing this entire time and, and it's worked. And so I think with Dogecoin, it's just so reliant on communication and sort of like this collective belief behind the value of an asset. Um, and I think with SNL, it's just such a good selling opportunity <laughs> for people um, to sort of take profits in case the whole thing did crash. So I think that's what happened there. But yeah, it's sort of funny because I mean, there's definitely core developers behind Dogecoin. Like, I don't want to discount that. Like, I know that there's developers and that there's people who are thinking actively about how to make the Dogecoin community better. And Kyle, um, sorry, I've got a question. Are those developers, have they been at it for like five years or they sort of, they've, they've uh, joined the game over the past three months? They followed, they've sort of followed the price. Yeah, I mean, I think like, I know the founder of Dogecoin has been around for a while and I think, I'm sure there's been some developers there for a bit. Um, I don't know entirely like who like amount the amount wise, but I think people are trying potentially trying to build it into a couple of different things. I, like I just think I, it's so it kind of bothers me because it's like it's supposed like a lot of people say, oh, it's the people's currency. But then you have people like um, 
like Mark Cuban, who's like, oh, it'll be a stable coin one day. Like it'll get pegged to a dollar and just kind of stay there. And then you have Elon Musk, like respect to both of them. But Elon Musk, who sort of like has memed it up and then it's like, oh, we'll accept payment uh, for SpaceX travel now in the form of Dogecoin. And it's like, oh, I'm sure there was some incentive there um, to sort of like pump it up like that and then accept payments uh, and sort of tie him. So, yeah, that's the whole thing. It's like it's supposed to be this like free currency for the people. And um, I don't think it is. Yeah, well, it's hard to have a free for the people currency when its most notable advocate is the world's richest man. Yeah. It's almost backwards, right? Like it doesn't seem right at all <laughs> that it works like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I, I will say definitely the people who buy it and trust it, I mean they it does have a, a core a, a team of core believers. Yeah. Um that that, that is something. So that's Doge. Now I hear uh, Kyla, and you told this today. I've never heard of this today, but I want I want you to explain it to the audience. Dogecoin may have a rival. Can you tell us about this? Yeah. So there's a Shiba coin, uh, dollar sign Shib. I, I think sh maybe Shib, maybe Shib. Yeah. Uh, so that's that started trading. I think on Binance today, uh, and it's just like another sort of pump coin. I, I don't know if that's the right thing to call it, but ever since GameStop, I feel like these things keep on popping up where it's like, oh, like we'll get together behind this one coin or stock or whatever and pump it. And then we'll take money and leave um, a, a pump and dump, I suppose you could call it. And uh, yeah, so Shiba is kind of the new one there. I don't know enough structurally, like it might be really great structurally. Um, but yeah, that, that seems to be the new uh, crypto play that people are moving into versus Doge. And is it big? Yeah, it was trending on Twitter. So I don't know if that means it's big in Twitter world, which is like a, a relatively big world, I guess, a microcosm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I was I read the article that you sent me, and they it's it was it's been around for I guess a little bit, but it was only recently that it was added to Binance and not just sort of the spot price. You can also trade something called a Shiba Perpetual Swap, which is kind of like a futures contract, but the future is forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so, <laughs> that's so fitting. Um, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. It's sort of like like if crypto does, if if some of the crypto coins do enter a bear market, if the stock market does enter into a bear market, what happens with these um, more, I, I suppose you could say speculative assets. Um, but yeah, it's a structurally very interesting to watch. Yeah, you know, everyone talks about how crypto is uncorrelated to the market. So if the S&P crashes 70%, It'll be interesting to see what Dogecoin does. I mean, it could crash alongside it, could crash more, could be stable, could could even go up. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of so. Like with the <laughs> with the sell off and growth, like I wonder. You know, you could say hypothetically, people might be rotating into Dogecoin versus rotating into value. <laughs> um, oh man! Oh. Is, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well, we do have a question, um, and actually, this goes back to the uh, topic of inflation from Juan Uribe who asks, uh, Kyla, please make the case against a transitory spike in prices. Why do price increases stick? Uh, you know, other than just saying that price increases are sticky. So basically, why won't it be transitory? I mean, so like, there's a couple of things and it, it works its way up through the supply chain. So even raw materials, like if raw material prices stay expensive, like products are going to have to stay expensive. And then same with like the production processes, if those stay expensive, so like sawmills, for example, with lumber, like if there's capacity constraints there and that's not fixed, 
um, and it's not transient, right? So it's not fixed right away. Like that'll show up in prices. And then I think businesses, like once you set a price higher, there's really not a ton of incentive unless you're Amazon to like push it back down. And so I think that's like a, a pretty important point. It's, and also like, you know, another thing that we didn't really hit on was like wages. So there with the jobs report, right? So like there's a, you know, a huge mission missing the jobs report, some speculation that, you know, wages aren't high enough and you're going to have to start paying people more. And all of that's going to result eventually potentially in um, higher prices too. So structurally, I think, you know, higher prices are always like once, once prices go higher, it's like, you know, they kind of have to stay there more or less. Yeah, I, there's this saying like volatility begets volatility, and I think you could say high prices beget high prices because if people are earning uh, or getting paid, you know, above fifteen dollars an hour um, by by the government, then yeah, a place like McDonald's or a place like Chipotle, where I read an article about them over those weekend, or you know, not great labor practices, perhaps um, they're going to have to pay more. And once those workers get paid more, are they going to accept? that they will be paid, are they gonna accept pay cuts just because Chipotle is gonna show them a report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics or like the PCE? You know, I don't think so. So I actually think, uh, Kyla, in terms of what you and I believe, we are actually, we we do think that it is, uh, that it will last and that we, we, we some somewhat inflationistas. Um, but tell me, so Juan, who says, please make the, can, the case against a transitory spike. Oh. In, in actually no no sorry sorry no what Juan, we, we did we did what Juan, i i misinterpreted okay. what Juan said. um now i've got a question for you so going back to uh dogecoin janet yellen tell us this reminds me of a theory that you stated which is the easy money flywheel can you just break down that us you know i'll post a screenshot on twitter later but just break down for us yeah yeah so <laughs> i mean it's just like a way to visualize i think the process that I, I was talking about in the article but so you have like low rates right so you have flow rates right now um and that leads to easy money so like lots of money flowing around it's theoretically uh and then that leads to excess dollars and i think the excess dollars go into one of two directions so they demand real products which is why we see the shortage in commodities and all like the demand for homes all that stuff but then the excess dollars also go into speculation um so that's why we see like pops and doge and now Shiba, all that stuff. Um, so I think that's kind of like what, and obviously there's other factors besides low rates, but with easy money, that's the two main drivers. And then that all leads back into like financing for companies too, which is, yeah. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, and it's all connected. You know, mm -hmm. there's some kinks in the treasury curve that sometimes briefly go negative. And it's not that the institutional banks and money managers who are buying that negative yielding paper are thrilled about it. It's just they have no choice. There's no place else to put their money. If they if they want to take a little bit of risk, put it in the 10-year, that moves the 10-year yield down. That, then the people who are buying the 10-year, they have to buy investment grade. That pushes the investment grade down. Then they have to buy high yield. Then they have to buy you know value stocks, the growth stocks. And then sooner or later, you know, you wake up in a garbage can after a night of partying and you've you've, you know, just you just own you know tons of Dogecoin. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's the exact process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's right. Uh, yeah, and, and like with high yield, like that, the, those yields have been pushed down to like the absolute, you know, bare minimum. Like, come, people are so hungry for risk, they're willing to take on 
so much risk. But also you could say like with the easy money flywheel, the Fed is backstopping a lot of the risk. So it's like even these companies that are high yielding that have risky balance sheets, the Fed is going to be like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. Nobody's going to default under our watch more or less. Um, so I think that's like another risk too. It's like you have so many zombie companies um, that could be here for no reason. You know? Yeah. For, for the folks at home, a, a zombie company is a company whose interest payments um, exceed its profits. So basically, it's almost doomed to, to get more and more indebted over time. Uh, Kyla, I have a question for you, which is I actually think that April is the only month on record since for, for at least two years where you haven't had any high yield defaults at all. And as we were talking about before, you know, the, the yield on, on, the, on the high yield is now extremely low in terms of spreads of two and a half basis points. For triple C's, I think it's five and a half, six percent. Very, very, very low. My question is, do you really think that the Fed will backstop the credit market, the least worthy, the least credit worthy, you know, the worst rated triple C's you know, after it has just inundated the market with liquidity for, for over a year? I mean, do you think that that sort of, uh, I forget the name of the program, but the actual Fed backstop, which was, you know, they, they you know, buying high yield bonds, which they only did a, a certain amount of, do you think that that's still on the table if the S&P remains over 4,000? I mean, I don't think so. I, I would hope not. Like, it wouldn't make sense. But I think it kind of boils down into market sentiment again. And obviously, structurally, like, if companies can't make their payments, like, that's a whole different issue. But I think that there's sort of this feeling that, like, you know, the Fed will swoop in and sort of save the day. Um, and that carries, I think, into yields and, and balance sheets and how companies can conduct business. So I'm so thrilled you, you brought that up. Did you have something else to say? No, I, I was just saying, like, I don't think they're going to say it explicitly, <laughs> but yeah, implicitly, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Well, on the topic of low yields and balance sheet management, uh, I've got quite a story for us to discuss now, which is that Amazon, the technology behemoth online retailer, issued a bond for an absurdly large amount of money. It was $15 billion. That was what I read at about noon. Later, it turned out it's actually $18.5 billion the largest issue that Amazon has ever issued, one of the largest uh, issues in corporate bond history, and it's in eight parts. It's got like a, a one-year part, a two-year part, a five-year part, ten-year part. So it's got eight tranches. It's kind of like you know a long novel that has just like eight different. It's kind of like War and Peace, you know? Yeah, yeah. I know it's uh, it's impressive that they're able to do that. You know? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's a. Rates are pretty low. I think that's what that signals. Yeah. And, and by the way, Kyla, the so the the longest duration part, the forty year bond. Do you want to know how much that yields? How much? Ninety five basis points over Treasuries. Nice. <laughs> so basically nothing. Mm, yikes! Wow. And but you know, people that'll be oversubscribed. I guarantee it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, in in uh, like we were talking a little bit earlier too, like the the. One of the core ideas behind it potentially is for them to buy back stock, right? Yes, I think so. I mean, it's a lot of speculation. It's it's buy back yeah. stock and keep prices uber low. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess both of those things make sense. But, um, yeah, yeah. No, it's impressive that they're able to do that. Uh, and then also, like on the topic of bonds, like with GameStop, and sort of like circling back to the idea of Doge. Like the fact that they got that their credit rating got upgraded is is uh, pretty interesting, and I think like you know they've kind of cleaned up, but yeah. Tell me more about that. Is it you know I saw the article that that you sent me, but is it just the fact that it's because the stock price is higher, they're able to issue equity and therefore they have more cash, so it's just by by definition they're better, or is it they're actually 
the credit, the S&P uh, rating agency, they're actually more constructive on the future business prospects, prospects of GameStop. So tell me more about that. I think it's a little bit of both um, because now that they're able to, they've got their stock price propped up. Um, I think having Ryan Cohen on the board is is always a good signal. Um, but yeah, I think having the stock price propped up by Reddit was really helpful. And then um, I think Ryan Cohen has some plans for how they can operate moving forward. So, but yeah, it is like without, without Reddit, I don't think that would have happened though. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think you're probably right. I do, does, it does strike me as a little weird as you have these sort of stocks that get to be increasingly owned by retail and then the media spins that as sort of a populist revolt. And then, you know, when AMC, they were able to uh, mm. issue additional equity and they, it's like the people saved AMC. And, and I guess that's true. But it's, what, if you really look at the, the money flows, it's, mm. it's retail bought a stock and then that stock was sold at a high price devaluing the stock that was just bought and it was used to pay off private equity people who are like very very wealthy so it's not necessarily the you know the populist sort of robin hood narrative that gets passed around yeah i mean i at the end of the day i don't think any of this is like yeah. i really i don't know like with game stuff like that, that's kind of confusing but like i think that there's always somebody on the other side of these trades like especially with doge especially with like you know maybe game stuff um it's not just it's not just the collective populace. It, it can't be. Yeah. Right, right. All right, Kyle, we do have a ton more questions. Um, this is a question about uh, your work specifically. Matthew wants to know, Kyla, what is your ratio of time spent researching versus pondering research versus creating content? How do you see that evolving over time and why? And that's related to a question that Peter asks, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what, uh, what, what's your process like making financial TikTok and how do you manage to stay consistent with daily posting and the <laughs> overall feed the beast mentality of content creation. Yeah, um, so researching, I would say probably spend like two to three hours a day just reading and catching up on the markets. I, you know, I trade, so that, that keeps me a little bit busy. Um, so yeah, two to three hours a day. Making the TikTok takes about in, in 30 minutes. I've gotten pretty efficient. Uh, it used to take a lot longer, but you know, writing the script, I'm taking all my screenshots. Of, I do green screen stuff, so taking all my screenshots, um, filming. So yeah, all of that takes about 30 minutes. So um, and with the feed the beast, I like to make little fun TikToks, like you mentioned with the wedding ring one. I feel like that I love making those, so that makes it super fun for me. And I just love, like I love talking about the stock market and and all the intricacies of it. So it's never it's not a burden. Yeah, I enjoy it. And when did when did you start doing this, Kyla? Um, I started making the TikToks about two months ago, but I've been creating content since I was in college. Yeah, I used to run a blog called Scanlon, my last name on stocks. Uh, so have been chatting online for a while. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Nice, nice. Um, Kel, I want to ask you, as we approach a close, about the financial stability report that yeah. came out of the Fed. We didn't talk about this beforehand, but I took a little bit of a risk because I, I saw it in one of your TikToks in the background. And it's, it was one of the rare instances where the Federal Reserve actually did, if not sound the alarm bell, they did issue, you know, kind of murmur that they're a little bit worried about how speculative things are getting. And you know, they're a little bit worried that, about, about the, the Dogecoin, about what, what cycle we are in, in terms of speculation. They say, um, prices of risky assets have generally increased since November with improving fundamentals. Uh, you know, long-term treasury yields have risen. Um, however, valuations for some assets are elevated relative to historical norms, even when using measures that account for treasury yields. In this setting, 
and this is what I highlighted, asset prices may be vulnerable to significant declines should risk appetites fall. Yeah, what a statement, right? <laughs> yeah, I, it doesn't sound like a big deal if you're just you know used to talking to people in a regular way, but for the Federal Reserve, that's it is quite a statement. Yeah, they yeah. they use uh they like to understate things. Yes, they do. Yeah, very very dovish, one would say. Um, but yeah, no, I think that uh, yeah, it, it, it's just interesting to think about it that way. Like, and I you I think you can think about it from a few different angles. Like with the reopening, like okay, so people all of a sudden like they don't get they don't want to sit at home and you know trade anymore. So like risk appetite would decrease that way. And then I think another way that the risk appetite would decrease and valuations could be impacted or values could be impacted. Um, is if we do have like a significant and a prolonged downturn. So I think like if people see the market, like today was small, like the two and a half percent down in the NASDAQ, like that's pretty small. But if we see like 10, 15, like 20% drawdown, um, how is that going to impact how people see the market? And even as we like quote unquote recovered from a drawdown like that, are people going to reenter? Are they going to be burned pretty badly? Um, because right now there's so much speculation and there's so much money just expecting that things will go up forever, but things don't go up forever. They're not supposed yeah. to at least. And um, they so. have, and it's, it's funny. So you and I, you know, we sort of live in the financial world of financial markets and financial news. So we've, we've been, you know, kind of witnessing firsthand the weakness in the NASDAQ. And we remember the, the huge sell-offs in February and then March, and we sort of reached a stable footing. I was shocked to learn that, um, before May, the NASDAQ had been up six months in a row, despite all that chaos. If, if you only had checked your, your, your account month to month, you would actually not have been pulling your hair out. Um, do you think that will, will, will change? Well, I mean, the market drifts upward 53% of the time. So I think, I think things trend upwards because companies are growing. And if you think about it from like a fundamental perspective, companies are always growing. Companies are always making more money. They're building new products. So the stock market should go up over time. Like we shouldn't, it shouldn't be a prolonged downturn. But I do think that, I think it's, it would be nice to, not nice, but like important, I think, to have a little bit of a pullback, a little bit of a, a breather of sorts. Yeah. I, you know, I always hear people uh, on financial television and, and other programs say that, and they're always super bullish. So you know that they own tons of these stocks, but then when the stocks go down, they're saying, like, you know, it's just super healthy. I love it. It's just it's so healthy. Like, it's like to go for a run, do some yoga, so healthy. <laughs> they're just taking a stretch. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, well, Kyla, um, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for coming on The Daily Briefing. It's been tons of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's it's super great. Um, where could people find your work on on TikTok, on Twitter, and your blog? Tell tell us about that. Yeah, so um, I'm at Kyla Scan on Twitter, and I'm at Kai uh, dot now. So Kai period now on TikTok, uh, and then my blog is just Kyla dot Great. So uh, thank you so much, Kyla, and to everyone watching at home. Um, I hope you enjoyed Ral and Ed's uh, talk today. Uh, beginning the exponential age, this journey of discovery we're going on over the next two weeks. Kyle, you may have heard about it. We're talking about electric vehicles, Internet of Things, and all these exponential technologies that have network effects. Tomorrow, Raul is going to be speaking to legendary venture capitalist and uh, crypto investor Bill Tai. All right, with that, we're going to have to leave you. Um, thanks so much, Kyla, and uh, thank you to everyone at home for watching.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.